Our text tonight is Matthew chapter 4, verses 12 through 17. Hear the word of God. Now when he had heard that John had been arrested, he withdrew into Galilee. And leaving Nazareth, he went and lived in Capernaum by the sea, in the territory of Zebulun and Naphtali, so that what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. In the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, the way of the sea beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people dwelling in the darkness have seen a great light. And for those dwelling in the region and shadow of death, on them a light has dawned. From that time, Jesus began to preach, saying, Repent! for the kingdom of God is at hand. That is the word of the Lord. So tonight we're going to talk about things that my mom and my mother-in-law do not want me to speak about, which is religion and politics. We always talk about one of those every week, but we're going to talk about both of those tonight. And my mom says that I'm not supposed to speak about either of these things because it's not polite manners. She doesn't want us to be offensive. She doesn't want to say things that might cause division between people. So we should never discuss religion, and we should never discuss politics. But the challenge is everything in our world is actually religion, and our religion must influence our politics. We've talked about it here before. Everybody in the world is worshiping something. It just depends what they are worshiping, and that thing that they worship impacts the rest of their lives. It's no different for us. And so... We need to be thinking about our politics as it applies to our faith, as it applies to Scripture. And I want to think about it in context of the very last line of the text that we just read, which is Matthew 4, verse 17. From that time, Jesus began to preach, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And what's interesting and cool is that this text, this is the very beginning of Jesus' ministry. The 12 to 16 were actually a piece of prophecy from Isaiah chapter 9. We've talked about how prophecy plays in and why it's included in the scripture to be able to validate and show who Jesus really was. And then after that prophecy said, what, what is said? Jesus actually speaks to us. And what does he tell us to do? Repent, because the kingdom of God is at hand. And here's what I thought was really interesting. What was the very first command that John the Baptist told us to do? Repent. And then the very first command that Jesus tells us to do is repent. And he gives us imperative, this command to repent. And then he tells us why we should repent. We should repent because the kingdom of heaven is at hand. So before we get into politics and the world and culture and how our Christianity should be influencing it, we really have to understand what the kingdom of heaven really is. And the kingdom of heaven, like a lot of biblical and theological topics is one that is hotly debated amongst theologians. Is it something we're waiting for? Is it something that's already here but not quite here? They, they call that the already but not yet. Or is the kingdom of heaven here right now? I actually subscribe to the last statement that the kingdom of heaven is here being built right now. And that's not where I've always been, too, and I'll explain that a little bit later. But I, I believe that the church is responsible for continuing to share the gospel and continue to usher in and build God's kingdom right now until Christ's return. So there's this eschatological, eschatological, the words are harder to say when you're in front of a group of people. That's, that is, means the theology of the end times. And there's this eschatological theology uh, uh, that is called post-millennialism. 
So you're going to hear, maybe you already have heard, when people in theological circles talk about the millennium. They're referring specifically to this thousand years that is mentioned in the book of Revelation in chapter 20. And so this, this thousand years, that's why it's called a millennium, is, is talked about in context of when Jesus is going to come back. And there is a whole bunch of disagreement about what that thousand years actually looks like. It would take a whole class for us to be able to really dig in on all the views of the millennium. But what I want to do today is kind of give you a high-level overview and tell you what I believe and what the church here believes. So most modern churches now believe in a, what, what you may have heard of as a rapture, a physical rapture, and a war between God and Satan before Christ's return. Basically, these churches believe that things have to get a whole lot worse before they get better and Jesus comes back. If you ever heard of the Left Behind series of books, they were moderately ridden and they made a really terrible movie or movies. I don't know, was it more than one? There was more than one. Not great. Um, that was kind of the whole premise of this, this, this thing that, uh, I can't think of Jenkins was the guy's last name. Dallas Jenkins' dad, that's the only thing I know. But this is why people will look for signs. They will look for signs in the world that they believe align with Revelation 20 to see how close to the very end we are. Is this it? Is this the end times? Look outside. Now, sometimes it does feel like you look outside. What day of revelation is it? You close the door. But that's actually not what I believe. But this concept is called pre-millennialism. Pre-millennial, right? I do not subscribe to this view. And there's a few reasons why. The first reason is it's not what scripture actually says. Hopefully, at some point, it's on my list of things for us to study as a church, is the book of Revelation. It's a difficult book to study because it's an allegory and it's in symbol. But until then, if, if you can take my word for it and we can discuss it afterwards, if we were to read the Bible in context, we were to read John's revelation in the book of Revelation in the appropriate context, we would see that the visions that he speaks about, all of that book is talking about who Jesus is and Jesus conquering. It's a book about Jesus' Christology, who he actually is. It is not a book looking for signs of impending doom. Now, there are other reasons outside of just what I think are the scriptural reasons that support my post-millennial view and not this pre-millennial view. The view that a majority of the churches now have taken is, is actually relatively new. It came mid-1800s. It kind of emerged when big tent revivals were taking place. They were dragging people in, and, and it was um, kind of the sales model of Jesus. You know, repent, sinners, sinners repent, and the, the kind of the big show that goes with there. But it's not a historic teaching of the church. Our church fathers did not subscribe to this particular eschatology. Now that's important. That does not mean that theologians today in 2020 don't have valuable contributions to, to biblical theology and biblical knowledge. But it is important to take a look at our church, early church fathers, their motivations and what they believed as we're starting to flush out what our faith and our the, uh, theology is. And it's because of motivations. People in the early church were not getting rich by building churches. People in the early church were not making the business out of church. Actually, a lot of the church fathers in the early church were being murdered for their beliefs in the early church. So it's important. Hi. Over that way. There you go. <laughs> but people in the early church, there was a consequence, especially for being public and believing in their faith. Whereas we know now, there's a whole industry of church world. I'm going to send it out to you guys this week, but I found a church job posting at a local church, and it reads like a business development executive. But it's for a pastor. 
And it's all these metrics and all of the things that I would have expected in a corporate company that I'd worked for, for a pastoral role. We live in a world where the church is big business, the tax-free status of church is big business, and we have to look at these things through that discerning eye. But the last thing for me is that premillennialism is not actually a theology of hope. It's just basically waiting for the next bad thing and the next worst thing to happen and then waiting for the moment when God's going to rescue us. And I think that this lack of hope is actually really important because I hear people who ascribe to this theology say things like, well, we, we know it's going to get a lot worse, but I still maintain and hold on to hope, which I appreciate and understand. But I think that the challenge is, is if we don't have big hope about what's taking place here, it does direct how we act and how we interact within this space. So I want you to hold on to that thought because we're going to come back to it at the very end. But my view is one of hope. If you've been here for any period of time, you know that even when we were studying Ecclesiastes, I always ended us on the hope of Jesus. Because there's some parts of Ecclesiastes that don't feel particularly hopeful. So my theology, my end times theology, is, is based and rooted in hope. And it's the same one that the early church ascribed to. It's one that's backed up by scripture. It, and it's actually the one that has the greatest chance of making an impact in our world. Now, that's not its primary goal. Our goal when we come together as Christians is to glorify God. That is our goal. But there are secondary effects for the fact of us glorifying God and being a body and influencing things within our world. We get to see the fruits of those things materialize. So the nutshell is my, my end times theology, post-millennialism, if we were to just kind of break it down, it's a view of the end times that holds that the kingdom of heaven is being extended into the world right now. It's being extended through the preaching of God's word and through the saving work of the Holy Spirit. And it believes, backed up by scripture, that the world will eventually be Christianized. That there will be more Christians in the world than there will not be. Political systems and governing systems will bend the knee to Christ. And that through the Christianizing of the world, the world will see an extended period of righteousness and peace, which is called the millennium, which will then usher in Christ's return. And it's after this place that Christ returns and we see the full judgment, the full resurrection, the introduction of heaven and hell in their fullness take place. But this view does believe that a majority of humans come to faith. It's actually one of Christian victory. You guys all know I love the Psalms. The Psalms are a place of godly victory as well. The Bible is a place of, of victory. God is the king. He's won the war, right? But what's beautiful about it is the post-millennial view does not separate Christ's kingdom or his sphere of influence. What it really highlights is that God has sovereign control over everything. Now, this may be the first time you've heard of this. This may be the first time you've heard these terms used. And if it is, do not fret. It was relatively new for me a few years ago. This isn't something that, I mean, most of you know I didn't even grow up in the church. So I've wrestled through lots of different theological doctrines when I was in seminary and I was out of seminary to try to figure out where I was rooted in my views in Scripture, my views of theology. But for me, it wasn't actually Scripture that drew it towards me. The Scripture backs it up. What for me it was, it was, it was the people that I had engaged with that were living this out in their lives that really encouraged me to study more. I, I took this really great class in seminary on Revelation, and it put me in this place called All Millennialism, which was kind of like somewhere 
not premillennialism and not postmillennialism. And I was pretty happy and content. I think I, I was living in a pretty good theological headspace there. But then I met this really rowdy group of Christians, like joyfully rowdy group of Christians, the same people we go to the conference with, the same folks that are, are helping us as with the church plant. These were people that were living out and acting out and fighting for God's kingdom. And they were living in joy because they were doing everything to glorify God. And they believe, they believe that the work that they are doing is important and impactful and commanded in the building of God's kingdom. They're hopeful people. They're joyful people. And it was actually their hope and their joy that caused me to study more because I wanted what they had. I was curious about, like, what what makes this tick? What makes these families tick? So God used these really hopeful Christians to draw me in deeper theologically, and that's kind of how we got to the place we are here. And here's what I mean in a little bit of a nutshell. If you believe that it's only going to get a lot worse, even if you believe in the promises of God, are you really going to put all of your energy into building his kingdom right here and right now? Or, even if it's just a teeny bit, maybe subconscious, are you going to resign yourself to the, well, that's just the way it is, there's nothing we can really do about it, everything kind of stinks anyways, but the end will eventually come, Jesus, please save us. I've said that before. But if you believe that you're actually ushering in God's kingdom, that you are an agent provided by the Lord to help build his kingdom for his glory... And that the present church has a meaningful and impactful purpose in that. That the church is instrumental in God's kingdom. Then think about how that will direct your work and your life and your interactions in every space. In your family, in your friends, in your politics. Because if you believe that it's actually only going to get better, that we're building a kingdom that is bringing righteousness and bringing peace, wouldn't you be highly motivated to work towards it? Wouldn't you want to be an agent of change? Wouldn't you motivate you to have a big family? Think about it. You have more kids to share the message. You have a bigger impact on generations, a thousand generations or more. Wouldn't you be motivated to want to be part of a robust church that's drawing people together as a family? One that where people know each other, they care for each other, they support each other? Wouldn't you want to be part of a place that teaches you to stand up, to fight, to feast, and to laugh despite all of the worldly circumstances around us? And wouldn't you be excited to be part of God's overall plan and design fulfilling the Great Commission? The Great Commission, which we're actually going to get to at the very end of Matthew, it's verses 28, 16 through 20. It's the very end of the book. Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw, uh, and when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. You get it? (laughs) It's pretty clear. All authority over heaven and earth is given to Jesus. We are to make disciples of all nations. And then he he tells us what happens. If you go do these things, behold, Christ is with you. We are called as a church, as a body, to go and make and baptize disciples of all nations. And why? Because the kingdom of heaven is at hand. It is right here, right now. That's why Jesus tells us to do what? To repent. Because the kingdom kingdom of heaven is at hand. We say it in the Lord's Prayer. We're going to say it in the Lord's Prayer in just a little bit. Think about the prayers that we say. Chew on these things. 
Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And see, this is why many people who have this kind of post-millennial view of the end refer to it as the post-millennial hope. Because it is the only end times that is rooted deeply, deeply, end times theology, deeply in hope. Which is why we continue to talk about practical things here, like politics, like your lives, like work, like education. Because those things have a meaning here on earth. Both of our moms, saying earlier, Kristen and mine, think we're a little bit nuts. Probably a lot of bit nuts. It's okay. They're not the first people. Because we talk about all the off-limit topics all the time. And why do we do that? Because a lot of times, these things have an edge to them. Are we doing it just to be edgy and just to poke? Because that's not a good reason to do those things. Or are we doing them because of where God is leading us and the right foundation that he has provided us through Scripture? Because if you think about it, all of these, these hot button, hot topic, topic items, these are where people are really passionate. Because there's some type of personal ownership that I think it is implied. Because everybody worships something. Everybody has a religion around something. Even if you don't believe in God at all, you still have a set of religious beliefs that you adhere to, rituals that you adhere to, things that you worship. My mom has actually been incredibly critical of me at times for my views on evangelism and fulfilling the Great Commission. She's said to me time and time again, who do you think you are to tell people that your way is the right way and their way is the wrong way? And Y'all might have experienced that in your life at some point as well. Who do you think you are to tell people that this is the only way? Well, the good news is we're not the ones actually telling them that. It's not our place to tell them that. That's why we don't tell them it's the right path. We use Jesus' words to tell them it's the right path. It's not me telling you. It's God through us sharing what the truth is. And why is that? Because truth actually matters. And Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. We care about life. We care about truth. So what do we share? We share the gospel. The word just means good news. We share good news because it's rooted in truth. They're not our words, they're God's words. Jesus even tells us that. He tells us to use his words to share his message. And we're to do that, to use those words to go and make disciples of all nations, to build God's kingdom here, to execute this command that God has given us. We are to share the truth of Christ with everyone, which sounds totally scary. So later afterwards, we got some tracks. We're all going to go door to door down the neighborhood. I'm <laughs> just kidding. <laughs> yeah, it totally works. Yeah, with the yeah with the T-shirts, I like the way you think. But it does sound scary, right? This idea, like, are we are we so what are we supposed to do with this? Uh, we talked about this a little bit when we studied Hebrews about how evangelizing and sharing our faith can can feel uncomfortable and feel awkward, especially when it comes to work, or maybe it's unbelieving family members, or our friends, or even just the greater community as a whole. Are we really supposed to share our faith with the clerk at Costco? Yes. <laughs> But this is where the post-millennial hope actually comes in and how we get to execute and share our faith. So bear with me. We are hopeful people because God's kingdom is here. It's being grown and it will reign and it will bring a time of peace and a time of righteousness on earth. 
Now, this is hard to come to terms with, especially when you look at the cesspool that exists in our country, in our city, in, in the world as a whole. But don't forget, many generations before us thought their world was a cesspool, thought the end times were incredibly near, and yet God's kingdom has continued to grow through this whole time. Do you not think during the fall of Rome, people didn't think that it was the end of the world? These huge empires coming down and crumbling, you have to imagine that people there were like, oh, I don't know, this doesn't seem real right. I think what the challenge is, it's the distance in which we can see. We're actually really short-sighted. To all of us, 100 years feels like an incredible period of time. It's a blink of an eye in God's economy. It's a blink of an eye in, in history. It's a generation and a half, depending on how long people live. It's actually World War I and World War II is where we saw the Reformed Church leave kind of the post-millennial hope. A lot of pastors then were just so upset hurt, damaged by war and destruction, that they, they didn't see this as God's kingdom advancing. They saw this as God's kingdom going backwards. But they only had short sight distance. That's not to, to, to minimize the effect of war and genocide and these really terrible things that have gone on, but have gone on since the very beginning of time. But with the access to information and news media, I think it changed the way, and we live in a totally different world now with, with the access to information, good and bad. But it, it caused people to question, is God's kingdom really here? All these terrible things are happening. And I really understand that. Those were, were challenges and things that I had to think about as I was coming to terms with what the Bible actually says, not with what I want it to say about particular things. It's that short-sighted view. We want to take a long view because the reality is the church is growing, but it's not always growing in the places that we're looking. It's not growing based on metrics and programmatic things. If you want to see where the church is really growing, you should go to places where the church is really persecuted. Go in a house church in China. There were Canadians during COVID having church in the woods, hiding from Canadian helicopters because they were arresting pastors for violating quarantine rules. Church in Africa, church in Ethiopia. There are people that are living this out and, and joyfully growing the church, and they don't have a fog machine or an electric guitar or lasers at any of those places. And it's because Christ is king over everything. And I think that the, the persecuted church really understands that better than the really comfortable progr programmatic church. See, Jesus has already defeated Satan. Satan has nothing on God's church. I remember a, uh, a professor in seminary who lives down the street, coincidentally enough, and he said, he said he thought it was really funny when like pastors were being petrified about churches. He's like, it's God's church. God's church will always survive. Now, <laughs> churches that are not actually doing and saying the things that they should be may not survive, but God's church, Satan can't win that. He, <laughs> we've already defeated Satan. Which means everything here in this world is under Christ's authority. It's under, it serves his purposes and serves his ultimate glory. And I think this is hard for us super independent American brains to grasp. Because we like independence and we like that we built it ourselves. But it's all through the providential hand of God. That's why we've, we've talked about this. But think about how wealthy America is. Even our poor are wealthier than, than, than a lot of people in other countries. Even some of our homeless have better access to food and health care, as limited as that may or may not be, 
than some people do in incredible impoverished nations, right? So it's easy to be comfortable when your nation as a whole is relatively wealthy. That's why the Bible talks over and over and over again about the challenges of wealth. We've discussed this at length, that, that many times when we are wealthy, we attribute it to ourselves. We don't attribute it to the giftings that God has given us. But if you're deep in persecution, if you're in Iran, I read a book about two women who did a whole bunch of prison time. I may have told you guys about this already. Prison time in Iran for distributing Bibles. <laughs> You okay? <laughs> That's okay. No. <laughs> um, it, is they, they, these two young women did all this prison time in in Iranian jail for, for distributing Bibles. Iranian jail is probably not a really nice place. I mean, they wrote about it in the book. I can guarantee it's not a really nice place. But they knew who was in control. They knew who was sovereign overall, and that is what directed them to do the things that they did at at at, at penalty of losing their lives. So if God promises us that his kingdom is here, then we should believe him. And if he commands, commands us about it, then, then we must do it. And it's all because of truth. Because truth really matters. It's my response to my mom. I'm not doing this because it's the thing I feel like I want to do. I'm doing it because God has commanded me to do it, and I am not God. He has outlined a way of living that is better for me than the way of living that I would pick for myself. And he's commanded me to follow that. And here's the spoiler alert. When, when we follow the outline and the commands that God has for us, things actually get better. They get more peaceful. They, they get, people are able to rejoice more. And why is that? Well, it's, it's because of things foundationally like the confession of sin, forgiveness, and repentance. Those are things that lead to worldly redemption. God redeems us. And through us glorifying him, we get to redeem the world. This is the model that builds biblically self-ruled men, and by extension, their wives and families and the community as a whole. See, the, the biblically self-ruled truth-teller does not need big daddy government to dictate their day-to-day -day lives. God has done that for us. I had this moment today about just some of the stupidity of laws. You know, you can't do puffing with your car in Colorado, right? You can't go run your car. There's obviously some environmental reasons, but part of the, you know why the, you can't go run your car when it's cold or when it's hot to get the heat or the AC rolling? Do you know why that law exists? So your car doesn't get stolen. Who are they punishing? The people not committing the crime. We are keeping you safe from the criminal versus helping build biblically self-ruled people that don't commit the crime because they're commanded by the Lord not to commit the crime. God has done this for us by providing us scripture. See, when we look at God's law and we look at the way God commands us to live, it changes, kind of flips everything upside down. It, it puts the government in its right position, which becomes an arm for, for executing appropriate real justice. This is not Sharia law. But it is a thing called a theonomy. It's, a, it's an idea of, of how God's rule and God's law impacts politics and the rule of man. This is not a, a mindset that demands that everybody has to be Christian. That's what Sharia law demands. But what it does is it applies God's standard of forgiveness and repentance to everybody in the world. Because the theonomic government is one that bows to the knee of the word of the Lord. It is a government that is first responsible to Jesus and then everybody else. I, I know I've said this a hundred times, but 
wouldn't it be amazing if your politicians actually apologized? We were really wrong. We lied to you. We're going to do a better job of not lying to you again versus covering it up and, and blaming, do the blame shift game and project it onto somebody else, right? Now, this is, this, no government on earth until Christ's return will ever be perfect. No church on earth until Christ's return will ever be perfect. We are all still affected by sin in the fall. But if we get to a place where everybody is under the fear and the governance of the Lord, it really does change the way everyone interacts with each other. So that, the question leads, how do we execute this in our lives? How do we apply this to our lives? How do we live in this place of post-millennial hope and also fulfill the Great Commission and deal with the mess that we have outside? Well, the first thing is, I think it requires us to remove this idea of a religious-secular divide. There is no such thing. There is nothing outside of God's control. God did not say, like, okay, well, I've got this thing over here. And all y'all go over there and just see whatever you want to do, right? Everything is under God's control and purview. So if we get rid of the divide that exists in our heads between religion and the rest of the world, what we then realize is that ultimately Christ has to direct all of our decisions. And our Christianity through that directs all of our decisions. Scripture, it'll direct what we eat and what we drink. It doesn't mean we keep kosher, because I like a bacon cheeseburger. It doesn't prohibit alcohol, but it does prohibit drunkenness. It doesn't prohibit eating, but it tells us to, to not make eating an idol and gluttony. It directs sex. It doesn't prohibit sex, but it gives us boundaries design, designed within the beautiful gift of marriage. It directs how we respond to each other's. It tells each other, not each other's. <laughs> it directs how we respond to others. How we are to love our enemy and not take revenge. It doesn't prohibit self-defense, but it does tell us not to murder. It directs our work, how we're supposed to be honest in business, honest weights and measures. It teaches us how to lead in an honest way, how to repent and, and confess when we fail to do the things that we are supposed to do. It deals with our sin when we fa fail to meet the standard that God has outlined for us. And it forgives us when we fail to meet that standard. And then we, thusly, forgive other people. We can go on and on and on. The bottom line is scripture is fully sufficient for life. It is fully sufficient for every aspect of your life. It tells us how to bring God's kingdom here and how to live a life of action. So I wanted to get to a modern day example, abortion. Abortion in any context is murder. We just read I had it in the notes, and I took it out of my head back in. Kristen found an article by a seminary professor the other day justifying murdering babies. And anytime somebody has to rationalize their scriptural beliefs, and it's like one of those boards with all the strings, like in that Matt Walsh documentary, you know, it's got the string connecting all the pieces, and you're like, and here's the conclusion. If it's that complicated, it's probably not true. Because I think the Bible is really clear. Exodus 20, 13 says, you shall not murder shall not murder. It's one of the Ten Commandments. There's no asterisk. You are not allowed to murder. It does not say you can, you murder, just don't murder unless the following conditions. You cannot murder, bless you. Do you remember that we used to post the Ten Commandments in schools and courthouses? Do you know why that was? Because God's law, the Deuteronomic system that we have, is what founded the American legal system. And the American legal system, adultery was illegal. In some states, it still is it's not in force, 
but it was and is in some places illegal because we built a legal system based around the law of God. We definitely don't live that way anymore. You shall not murder. Now, it's interesting because it seems like something that simple should not create a polarizing topic like abortion. But abortion is so incredibly polarized in our cu- culture, and, and it's because media now and, and a handful of you know, the, the third-wave feminism movement um, and kind of coming on the tail end of the Enlightenment and the self is the most important thing, all of those things wrap together, and then you start changing the words. We turn it into a women's health issue instead of directly addressing what it actually is. We don't want to call it murder, so we'll call it women's health. And I'm not trying to sound uncompassionate. It's just the truth. We have bastardized words to make them more palpable. Women's health clinic sounds better than murder clinic. Embryo sounds better than living, breathing baby. Planned Parenthood makes it sound like people like went there to sit down and have discussions about how to plan their life out and how to plan their parenting out versus what is actually a murder factory and, and is encouraging young women to get abortions because there's a five or $700 tab every time associated with it. What's blowing my mind now, and I didn't always feel this way. We've talked about this in the house. Like, if you would have asked me five or six, seven, eight years ago, I'd probably be like, oh, who am I to say? I'm a man. I don't even have a... But God has thankfully changed my heart. But what is amazing to me is that abortion is listed as a health right. What is healthy about it? It is the only medical procedure, outside of assisted suicide, which is also murder, that the success of the procedure is based on one of the two patients dying. You have to kill somebody for that procedure to be successful. So the truth that abortion is murder. And we as Christians are commanded not to murder. And we are also, as Christians, hopeful people. So what are we to do? So what we are to do is this is how our Christianity impacts all of the other areas of our lives. The first is we stand firm. We don't back down from what we believe. We don't shrink because the culture around us is pushing on us and telling us that we're hateful because we believe in the sanctity of life. We're following God's commands. But even more important than that is that we also have to be able to articulate what we believe, and we have to do it in a compassionate way. And there are plenty of churches that have failed to do this in a compassionate way. We can think of example after example after example of churches that have really messed up approaching these things compassionately. And I understand why people shrink away from this, from telling the truth, because it can have impacts with family and friends and work. I totally understand all of those pressures. But the reality is truth is the truth no matter what. There's no your truth and my truth or your truth and my truth or yours and mine. There is only the truth. It is not subjective. And this is why I really love Paul's words to Timothy in 2 Timothy 2, 24 through 26. He says, And the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone, able to teach, patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents with gentleness, God may perhaps grant them repentance leading to a knowledge of the truth that they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil after being captured by him to do his will. We have to be kind to everyone. We must patiently endure evil. Paul even tells us in Romans, when it's up to you, be at peace with everyone. 
He realizes that sometimes it's not up to us. That's why self-defense is allowed. But when it's up to all of us, we are to be at peace with everyone. And then we have to patiently endure evil. And then we're to correct our opponents with gentleness. Why? First, how many of you respond well when you are screamed at? Is that a good motivator for you to change things? Just someone getting in your face and yelling at you? Yeah, me either. People rarely respond well when they're being screamed at. So, obviously, correcting people with gentleness and maybe even laughter is probably a place that will allow us to engage in a better discussion than screaming at somebody and telling them that they're wrong. But it's deeper than that, too. And, he, and Paul says it in, in the next part of that verse. He says, God may grant them repentance. There's that word again. It's an amazing word. Leading to a knowledge of the truth. Then they come to their senses, escaping from the snare of the devil. If we always speak the truth, we're not responsible for how people receive it. God is responsible through the Spirit on working for that. It's the same reason we're not responsible for converting people to Christianity. Chris and I were talking. There's a Baptist church we went to when we first got together. Big church, kind of mega church thing. And they did one Sunday like, if you prayed the sinner's prayer, raise your hand, close your eyes and raise your hand. Like we're taking a head count. How many people do we convert today? It's not how it works. We tell the truth. We preach the truth. We share these things. And the Holy Spirit works in people's hearts or he doesn't work in people's hearts and brings them to a place which is hopefully saving, which also involves their repentance. If he brings them there, it is saving, but hopefully people get saved through the Spirit is what I mean. And it's really great news. And it's incredibly great news now that Roe versus Wade has been overturned. It's an incredible joy. It's an incredible win for God's kingdom. But it is literally just the beginning. It should be a reminder that our Christianity has to impact our politics. It impacts who we vote for, how we vote. You cannot support and vote for things that are antithetical to God's word and God's commands. Because the reality is the church is growing. It's not always in the places we're looking. But if we're taking this positive theology with us, then it's going to impact how we make change at a city level, at a county level, at a national level, at an international level. And this is so much more important than politicians. Politicians are not your savior. They cannot save you. They are sinners, most of them pretty big sinners. We would be really grateful if Jesus worked in their heart and brought them to a place of repentance. Do not fall into the cult of personality of politicians no matter who they are, because politicians cannot save you. But you do need to vote on the issues, and you do need to make your voice heard, and you do need to work to bring the kingdom of God to your community. But you also know how, need to know how to speak about these things when we're talking with friends and family members and co-workers, because it has to direct every aspect of our life. I would guarantee that everybody here that's an adult probably knows somebody that has had an abortion, or maybe you've had one yourself. And if we're being really honest, I think we can know how Satan uses deception to put people in those places. See, that's why when we respond to this topic, we have to do it from a place of compassion, and we have to think about it from a place of where people are deceived, and where they're in a place where they are in a place of crisis, and they feel like they're out of options, and they don't know what to do. And there are people willing to deceive those people to help enable them to do really tragic things. But if we look at it from a place of deception, then we can approach it from a place of incredible 
compassion. I mean, that's what Satan does at places like Planned Parenthood. They use wording, and they, they, they provide what they consider to be options. Adoption's never one of those options. To, to, to help people through a, a crisis, which may be a very real crisis in their life. What it would place them in walking in the door of a Planned Parenthood is probably traumatic and, and crisis uh, as a byproduct of crisis, right? But Satan's using this and manipulating this and manipulating the words to destroy life. Very few women who have been through that process don't suffer some kind of regret and some kind of pain emotionally and physically because of abortions. So we need to be people of compassion and gentleness, even if someone's gone down that path. There is no condemnation that comes from us. In fact, we actually can't condemn people. What we do is we offer love and forgiveness and the gospel. We give them life. We give them life through God's love. That's why we speak truth, always. None of us get to be judgmental people here because every single one of us has done things that if any the rest of us here knew about them, we would probably feel judged. And thankfully, through grace of God, God has given us forgiveness and he's commanded us to extend that same forgiveness to other people. Peace and righteousness. These are God's economy. This is why we speak truth. Because truth is love. Truth is always love. And we do this because we believe the kingdom of heaven is here and now. We need to be voting with our faith because our faith should be our most important thing in our lives. It directs all of our actions. It directs how we lead our families, how we go to work, how we get up in the morning, what we eat, what we do. God and his command should be the blueprint for all of our interactions here on earth. That's why even if you're not out preaching sermons, the way you're evangelizing is living out your Christianity and living out your hope in your day-to-day -day life. Because people will see it. They'll ask you questions. They're going to be intrigued. It's in a way of actively discipling people. You're living out your beliefs. You're not like pretending the beliefs are just one little way on Sunday, and then the rest of your life you're not living them out. They are integral to who you are. And people, if you're joyful and hopeful, are going to want to know what that's all about. Because you don't have to stray very far down the street to find people that are not joyful and not particularly hopeful. We're Christians. Our goal is to glorify God in all we do. And the secondary beautiful pride product of that is it brings peace and righteousness to the world. It's why we're so hopeful for our kids. Our kids are soldiers in God's army. They're being trained to slay dragons. We're equipping them with the armor of God so that they grow his kingdom right here and right now, being peaceful and righteous people. That's why we encourage big families. I was an only child. I didn't even know if I ever wanted kids. We have so many kids. It's so cool. It's so cool. I was gone for a lot of it too, so I didn't even know how cool having a whole bunch of kids is. Nothing makes me so sad than when I hear parents and I hear pastors talk about how they really dislike having children. Children are a lot of work. That is no lie. You teenagers, that is an adventure all by itself. But it's so cool. You get to grow up, we get to watch you, we get to shape, we get to see how you get to go out and impact the world. It's so exciting. It's really beautiful. It's full of hope. And you guys are all going to have troubles at some point. Some things are going to hit you in your life that you didn't even expect. But you have Jesus to go alongside you, that there's always hope. It's never, ever, ever hopeless. It's so good.
We do all of this because God's promised us and he's commanded us. That's why we come here and we feast and we rejoice because we've already won. It's not a battle that we have to go out and win. It's a battle that's already won. We just have to keep fighting and doing and loving and rejoicing. I remember once being attacked by somebody who said, it just seems like you just want to turn everybody to be Christians. And I think they said it in this way that was going to trap me. And I was like, well, yes, I do. I was like, that sounds like a great idea. Everyone's forgiving each other, confessing their sin and repenting. Bring it on. Sounds like a great time. Because a Christian world actually has the right order. It's got God at the head of the world. And what's really great about a Christian world is the Christian world treats the unbeliever with gratitude and peace just as they treat the believer. You cannot say that about any other religious system. Sharia law. Sharia, uh, Islam means submit. And Sharia law says that if you can either submit or we'll kill you. So YouTube, that is not what a theonomic Christian system looks like. Because who are we told to love no matter what? Everyone, bless you. Our neighbors, our enemies, everybody. Which means even if your neighbor's not a believer, we still have to love them. And we still have to grant them peace when it's up to us, right? A, a Christian world is actually a free world. It's one of much smaller government because you don't need somebody to tell you not to run your car with the AC on outside so that the other guy doesn't steal it because we're living within a system of morality instituted by God. But a Christian world is one of forgiveness, even for the most appalling sins like murder. Forgiveness and accountability both go hand in hand. We still forgive people, but that doesn't mean we don't hold people accountable. I think sometimes forgiveness is treated as like being a little bit weak. Reconciliation is different than forgiveness. But forgiveness is commanded. We are required to forgive people. That won't take away from accountability. If somebody's murdering people in cold blood, they can be forgiven, but they still have to be accountable. And a Christian system brings both of those things up to the front. Accountability and forgiveness. Creating biblically self-ruled men and families and homes and wives and children. A Christian world is the only world where enemies can love one another. And only in a Christian world can the last actually be first and the first be last. And only in a Christian world do you get true peace and true righteousness. So my charge for us as we wrap up tonight, I want us to be people of hope, people of action. I want us to be builders. We are building something great. The, the church that we are less than two months away from, from opening, we are there to build a community, a body, so we do all of this together. We're advancing, and we're rejoicing, we're ushering in God's kingdom right here and right now. And it's not for our glory, it's not for our profit, it's not for our well-being, it's to glorify him. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Let's pray. Father, we are so grateful. We're grateful that the kingdom of heaven is at hand. We're grateful for the body here. We pray that you strengthen us. Strengthen us in resolve to stand firm. Strengthen us to be gentle and kind. Strengthen us to have the patience to endure evil. Lord, remind us to repent, to repent early to grant forgiveness to one another, and to believe in the things that we're building. You've made these promises to us, Lord, and we know that we can see examples of where just things feel dark, but we know just a little bit of light dispels an incredible amount of darkness. 
So let us be people of light. Let us be people who glorify you in everything that we do. Let your word rest upon our hearts and our minds and our mouths, and may it direct all of our actions. In your mighty name we pray. Amen.